Father, we want to begin just by praising you for the Lord Jesus. Lord, we are so grateful that you have demonstrated your own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. Father, I pray that we would be overwhelmed with just the fundamental truth of the gospel, that you have loved us from all eternity and have called us to yourself and have made us your own. So we want to hear from you, and we want you to speak to us, and we want our hearts to be in tune with what your word says. And Lord, we don't want to be blown about by every wind of doctrine and false teaching, but we want you to bind our consciences to the truth. And Lord, especially at those places where the culture is pushing back and making it more difficult for us, Lord, that we would believe in, in spite of opposition. And Lord, we know that in no area today is that opposition more pronounced than in what we think it means to be a man and a woman and a husband and a wife. So Lord, let us hear from you. Open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimony and not to dishonest gain. And establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we'll ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think it's safe to say that our culture has undergone a massive revolution in the last 10 years in its understanding of marriage. There are a number of events that we could point to that illustrate this. We could look at the Supreme Court decision, Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015, or even the Windsor decision, which was handed down two years earlier in 2013. But for me, the event that revealed just how mainstream the new definition of marriage had become was an announcement from the President of the United States in 2012. And so some of you may remember, in the spring of 2012, President, then President Obama sat for an interview with ABC News to announce that his views on what marriage is, his views on that had changed. And he said this, and I, I quote, he said this in the interview, he said, I've just concluded that for me personally, it's important for me to go ahead and affirm that I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. And then he goes on from there. He says, Michelle and I are both practicing Christians. And obviously this position may be considered to put us at odds with the views of others. But, you know, when we think about our faith, the thing at root that we think about is not only Christ sacrificing himself on our behalf, but it's also the golden rule, you know, treat others the way you would want to be treated. And he goes on from there explaining that if you are keeping the golden rule and you're treating others the way that you would want to be treated, then you would obviously recognize people who want to be gay married as legitimate marriages. Now, my reaction to what the president said was probably not that different from what your reaction was. I couldn't have disagreed more with what he said. It was stunning, actually, to hear a sitting president cite scripture as if Jesus himself would support sexual immorality. But then I also thought when I heard this that there's really nothing new here. The president is 
a sign of our times. He's not the cause of our times. If you think that the former president caused the massive revolution in our culture and it's thinking about marriage, you would be massively mistaken about that. Changes in our culture's understanding of marriage have accelerated over the last decade or so, but the seeds of this change were sown many decades before that. Our culture long ago embraced the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s. Our culture long ago embraced the idolatry of sex and the diminishing of marriage. Our culture long ago embraced the severing of human sexuality from its natural connection to children and, through, and to family through modern birth control technologies. Our culture long ago embraced no-fault divorce and the idea that we can change spouses like we change our socks. That there's no difference between men and women and that gender is just a social construct that we learn from culture, not something that's been given to us by God at creation. And then closely related to this, our culture has embraced the idea long ago that gender shouldn't matter when it comes to human sexuality. And so we have a whole generation of young people who are looking at their parents of a different generation and they can't figure out why mom and dad have all these hang-ups with sexuality. So our culture's devolution on marriage didn't begin in 2012 with an announcement from the president of the United States. This slide has been a long time in coming, which is why I want you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. If you haven't already, open up to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 21 and following. Last year, when I spoke here, I spoke on the issue of transgenderism and what does it mean to be a man and a woman. Um, this time, I'm going to be talking about marriage in particular and what does it mean to be a man and a woman in marriage. What is the particular calling that God has put on the lives of men and women when they enter into the covenant of marriage? This passage that we're going to look at is more than a how-to guide about how husbands and wives should relate to one another. This passage actually defines for us what marriage is. And the passage is actually an extension of the command, if you remember back in verse 18 of this chapter, in which Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. By that, he means be controlled by the Spirit. And one manifestation of the Spirit's control over our lives is how we think about marriage and how we relate to each other as husbands and wives within marriage. And so my focus this morning is really not what's, it's not going to be on what's wrong out there in the world, but it's, it's, my focus is really going to be on what needs to go right in here with us, those of us who are a member of Christ's body. And the truth of the matter is that too many of the pews across our country are filled with people whose thinking about marriage differs very little from the rest of the world. And so there has to be more to marriage than what the world is alleging. And Ephesians 5, 21 and following confirms that there is. In fact, that this text says that God's glory is at stake in marriage. And that's the key thing that I want you to see. God's glory is at stake in, in marriage. God's, there's, and there's three ways we're going to look at this. Number one, we're going to look at God's glory in a wife's calling to submit to her husband. God's glory in a husband's love. 
And then finally, God's glory in marriage. So God's glory in a wife's submission, God's glory in a husband's love, and God's glory in marriage. So first of all, God's glory in a wife's submission. Everybody look at verse 21. Notice there he says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Some of your translations say, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Now let me say up front that I know that that word submit or submission is a word that throws up red flags for a lot of people when they hear it. Folks hear that word and immediately they begin to have negative associations. They associate it with coercion, maybe misogyny or abuse. So let's just stipulate right here up front. Um, that is not what ta- Paul is talking about at all. He's not endorsing any of those things when he says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Um, he's, he's telling them this for a different reason. So what does he mean by this? Well, the word that Paul uses for be subject or um, sometimes rendered as submit, it's actually a military term and it refers to ranking someone in a higher position who's um, leading someone who's in a um, subordinate position. So to be subject means um, someone recognizing and affirming the authority that has been um, rightly put over them. But what does Paul mean then by to one another? Because it says submit yourselves to one another or be subject to one another. There are some people who read that and think that it means something like mutual submission. And on that interpretation, it would mean that everybody in the church submits to everybody in the church. That's what submit to one another in the fear of Christ means. So that everybody submits to everybody in the sense that we all serve one another and put one another's interests above our own. And that's the mutual submission idea. And of course, I agree that we should all serve one another and put one another's interests before our own. That's taught, obviously, Philippians 2, elsewhere. But, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about about here. And and the reason for that is that the word Paul uses is a lot stronger than that. It's a word that denotes voluntarily submitting yourself to a rightful authority. It's, as I said, it's a military term. So Paul's not telling everyone to submit to everyone. That's not what one another means. He's telling one group of their specific responsibility to their spouses. And Paul makes that crystal clear in the next verse. Because he specifies in verse 22, he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Paul is simply specifying who is supposed to submit to whom. And he's saying, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord, which means wives are supposed to follow the leadership of their husbands. So Paul says that the wife has the responsibility to follow the leadership of her husband But notice what he does not say. Paul could have said, husbands, subject your wives to yourselves. In other words, Paul might have spoken in such a way that called on husbands to compel or coerce submission from their wives. And and in fact, that would have gone very well. It would have gone with the grain of the patriarchal world that he was addressing at that time. He could have spoken that way. That's not how Paul talks. He addresses the wives, not the husband. He addresses the wives here and he says, be subject. You recognize this authority and you follow and affirm this authority within your marriage. 
Now, a word here about the different kinds of authority that we see in the Bible. I think it's really important for us to understand this when we think about the covenant of marriage. A lot of people get this mixed up. But in the Bible, we see um, at least two different kinds of authority. Um, What Jonathan Lehman calls an authority of command and an authority of counsel. Okay, An authority of command is different from an authority of counsel in that the authority of command comes with it um, a means of enforcement. Okay, So an authority of command has a means to enforce its authority. So when you look in the Bible, you see in Romans 13, an authority of command is given to the government. Because what, does, what instrument does God put in the hand of the government in their authority? The sword, right? It's a means of enforcement. Um, parents have an authority of command with their children. What is the means of enforcement that the Bible puts in their hand? It's the rod, right? Um, I, I'm a Baptist. I'm not in a Baptist church, am I? You're Baptistic, right? Um, I'm a Baptist. Um, God, I believe God gives to congregations an authority of command. There's a means of enforcement within a church. We call that discipline, right? So th- there are legitimate authorities in the world that God gives a means of enforcement for that authority. But there's also what we see in the Bible as an authority of counsel. And the influence there is not given with a, a, a means of enforcement, of, of a coercing kind of, a, of enforcement. An authority of counsel is one of persuasion. It's one of example. Okay, that's what an authority of counsel is. So a pastor, for example. Again, I'm a Baptist, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of the pastors in our church. I can't, uh, I can't compel people to obey Jesus. Uh, the congregation can, has discipline, but I, as a pastor, don't discipline members. Okay, I can, I can preach, I can lead by example, I can lead by persuasion. But I don't have a means of enforcement in that sense, personally. A husband's authority in a marriage is an authority of counsel. It's not an authority of command. He does not bear the rod or the sword or any kind of physical means of coercion in his authority. It's an authority of persuasion and of example and of leadership. Is everybody following me here on the difference between authority of command, authority of counsel? You start treating your authority in marriage, husbands, as an authority of command, that's what leads to abuse. You don't have that. Okay, You have an authority of counsel. So what that means then for wives, as this is addressing you, you are called voluntarily to submit yourself to your husbands. Submission is not a draft. It's an all-volunteer force, and the responsibility falls to the wives to submit themselves to this God-ordained authority. It's still a real authority, even as an authority of counsel. So it falls to the wives to submit themselves, not to the husbands to make them submit. So husbands, if you ever find yourself trying to force your wife to follow your leadership, you need to know that's a little check your engine light, that there's a problem in your marriage, especially if it's a pattern over the course of your marriage. And you need to be asking yourself, what's going on here? Why isn't she following my, my leadership? And, and the answer could be, she's in she's a rebellion against the Lord and, and his calling for her in marriage, that could be it. If that's the case, you can pray for her, you can tenderly exhort her. But I've found it's often the case that the reason a wife is not following is because the husband's being a crummy leader. 
But no matter what the reason is, you need to be clear in your own mind that you must never try to coerce or manipulate submission. Obviously, you would never physically coerce a wife to do anything that would be sinful and abusive, but neither would you be verbally abusive or, or try to um, um, emotionally intimidate your spouse to get your way. If you find yourself having to resort to verbal and emotional intimidation, then the problem is not her, it's you. And you need to repent. But wives, this does mean that the onus is on you to follow the leadership of your husband. And the text says, as to the Lord. And it, and it says that you're to submit to your own husbands. So that means you're not to submit to every man. That would be unfaithful to your marriage covenant. It's just to one man, your, your husband. God calls you to affirm the leadership of your husband as to the Lord, which means you should view that calling on your life to affirm his leadership as a part of your commitment to the Lord Jesus. So the narrow road that leads to, to life for you, wives, is the path of affirming that leadership. It includes that. So why does, why does God... Put this calling on wives. Why does he say, you know, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord? Well, he explains why in verse 23. Everybody look at it. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. Now, our culture treats leadership in marriage like it's a jump ball. And you know what happens in basketball when there's a jump ball. The referee comes in. And he tosses up the ball and whoever's, you know, stronger and quicker, you know, gets possession of, of the ball. That's actually not how God appoints leadership in marriage. It's more like an inbound pass, right? The, the referee is assigning possession of leadership before the ball is even thrown in to play. And in marriage, God assigns that leadership role to the husband. That's what headship is all about. Now, God's word, this text, does not say that the husband should be the head of his wife. Notice the text says that he is the head of his wife. The key character question that every husband has to face is not whether he will be the head, but what kind of head he will be. You are the head whether or not you recognize it. You will either embrace your calling as head... Or you will abdicate that calling as head and lead your family into dysfunction and misery. But for better or for worse, if you're a husband, you are the head and you will give an account to God for how you steward that, that calling. And so this verse says that the husband is the head of the wife, which means that term head is a, is a word that designates authority. Now, there are some people, if you look at egalitarian interpretations of this text... They will try to explain the husband's headship away by saying that head doesn't mean authority, but that it means source. And it's a, a very uh, common egalitarian interpre interpretation of this text. Um, but that, that's an incorrect interpretation. And we know that um, because the husband's headship right here in the text is patterned after Christ's headship over the church. It says, as Christ also is head of the church. And in this very book, in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1 and verse 22, in fact, Paul says what Christ's headship over the church is like. It says, Ephesians 1, 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as 
head over all things to the church, which is his body. I mean, you tell me, what's headship talking about there? It's not just talking about source. It's talking about authority and actual leadership of, of Christ over his church. And now the husband's headship is patterned after this. So obviously headship has to do with authority. And so in this way, the husband is called to be the leader and authority in the home. But look at verse 24. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now this verse has scared a lot of people over the, the years. Does it really mean that a wife has to affirm the leadership of her husband in everything? Um, well, let's just remember, when you're looking at analogies in Scripture, they're not, if you press the analogy too far, it will break down. This is not a perfect analogy. But, and the reason for this is because Christ is sinless and perfect. Okay? Husbands are not. Surprise! If my wife were here, she would be saying, Amen! Okay? Husbands are not. So wives are not supposed to, there are certain things a wife would never submit to. A wife should never submit to abuse or to sin. Your husband does not have the authority from God to do that. He doesn't have authority for that, and you should not submit to that, okay? So no authority on earth is an absolute authority. Certainly that includes a husband's authority. And so when submitting to a husband would require somebody to submit to abuse or to sin, obviously the Christian wife would follow the example of Peter and the apostles when they said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, there's a higher authority that you know that you have to submit to. Well, if that's the case, well, why then does Paul use this expansive language that she must submit to her husband in everything? Well, because he, Paul really does intend for wives to model how the church relates to Christ. How does the church relate to Christ? Um, well, the church relates to Christ by following and affirming his leadership in everything. So he really does mean an expansive thing here. Now, this does not mean that a wife has no opinion or deliberation with her husband, but it does mean that there's a happy deference that's pervasive in everything that she does. In my own marriage, that doesn't mean it's always easy for my wife to do this. It certainly doesn't mean I'm always right. And again, she'd be saying amen. Um, but right or wrong, she's always aiming to honor the calling of leadership that God has put on my life in our marriage. You know, my wife and I, my wife's name is Susan. Susan and I have had this perennial disagreement over the course of our marriage. It's caused some conflict over the course of our marriage. Um, but we tend to butt heads a little bit when it comes to determining when the appropriate time is to fill up the gas tank <laughs> in the vehicle. And this is how it usually goes for us. The gas gauge will be approaching empty and she'll politely say... Looks like we're getting a little low on gas. And I'll reply, no, we got plenty. And on more than one occasion, she has had to endure coasting around town on fumes because I don't want to pull over and get gas and we can go a little bit further. Well, several years ago, I don't even have to finish this story. You, you already know where this story, you could come up here and tell the story for me right now. 
But some years ago, we were uh, driving down a freeway in Dallas. We were living in Dallas, Texas at the time. And uh, it was, we were on a, it was like an eight, you know, 12 lane freeway, a huge freeway. Sunday afternoon, driving about 15 miles to my aunt's house to visit her. We have one of our little conversations. Honey, looks like we're getting a little low on gas. No, we're fine. Go up and visit my aunt. We're driving home. Honey, I think we're getting a little low on gas. Oh, we're fine. Well, you know what happens. Um, I'm driving on this freeway. Everybody's whizzing by. And all of a sudden, I feel the gas pedal go loose under my foot. And we're on this freeway, and I'm out of gas. But right when I feel that, it just so happens that there was an exit. So I steer the car over this exit. And I had just enough momentum to go all the way up this exit ramp. And when I got to the top of this exit ramp, there was a green light. And right across the street, there was a gas station. <laughs> and so we had no power, but I rolled right up that exit ramp and right into the gas station and pulled up to a stop. And I was like, what? <laughs> See? That's not even the worst time, though. This has happened more than once, right? Uh, one time she was pregnant, nine months pregnant, about to get, we're doing our last date night before the delivery for, with our first child. And I pull up to an intersection and we run out of gas. And she had to shimmy over the console and I had to get out and push the car. So ladies, let me just say this. Um, sometimes affirming the leadership of your husband is going to be difficult. And the difficulty is not always going to be because your husband's being abusive or asking you to do something as sinful. It may be just because he's being a bonehead. <laughs> he may be doing something that you believe to be unwise or that could be done in a better way. It doesn't mean that you can't talk to him. And husbands, it doesn't mean that you can't li listen to your wife. In fact, the Bible says, husbands, 1 Peter 3, you need to live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, live with your wives according to knowledge. You need to know what her needs and thoughts are. That, that needs to, to be a part of your counsel that you hold dear. So, but, but ladies, it, it, it's not always going to be easy to do this. Sometimes you may actually know better in a given situation. And so submission for you is going to be trying to figure out how to honor your husband's leadership no matter what the situation is. That's what it means to submit. Submit to your husband in everything, just like Christ submits to the church. So you need to offer your counsel to your husband to make sure he has all the wisdom he can glean from you as you all make decisions. But you also need to offer him your patience and support even when you find it difficult because you disagree. Because there's a real authority that God has put on his life and a calling that he's put on his life that you need to affirm. So God's glory is revealed in a wife's submission. But the second thing here is God's glory is revealed in a husband's love. Everybody look at verse 25. Notice there, it says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now notice, it's, it's the wife's responsibility to be subject, but the husband's responsibility is to love. These are different emphases, different emphases on the callings here that are given to the husband and the wife. Um, but love in this text, you'll notice is not just a state of mind on the husband's part, but this love issues forth in certain kinds of behaviors from the husband to the wife. 
Now, we can summarize these behaviors in three words, if you're writing anything down. If you want to know what headship is all about, headship is about leadership, protection, and provision. So husband, you're going to love your wife by leading her, protecting her, and providing for her. We've already seen the leadership assignment in verse 23, where it calls the husband the head. But where do we, um, um, where do we see this, the, the assignments of protection and provision? Well, if you look at verse 28, notice verse 28. It says, so husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. How does a husband treat his own flesh? He nourishes and cherishes it. But what is his own flesh? It's not just himself, it's his wife. She is his flesh. So men, when you're sitting at home and your stomach growls and you're hungry, does somebody have to come to you and like talk you into or cajole you into feeding yourself? No, you just get up and feed yourself. If you're hungry, you eat. You provide for yourself instinctively. Um, if I come up to you, one of you guys... And I'm not going to do this, but if I reared back a fist at you like I was going to punch you in the face, what, what do you do? You block or you move, or, right? Um, without thinking about it, you're going to put your hands up and counterpunch or do something. Instinctively, you go into protect mode when there's a threat. That's how you're supposed to love your, your wife. You lead her, you give her your protection and provision, and you do so in a way that's instinctive. You don't have to be cajoled or told to do this. You do it just because you're caring for her like you care for yourself. It's kind of like, you know, the, the Old Testament saying that Israel is the apple of God's eye. When people touch Israel, they're touching God's eye, right? When somebody touches your wife, or something's happening with your wife, she's hurting in some way. It's touching the apple of your eye. It's you. It's hurting you. So your love is modeled on Christ's love for the church, which means that it's sacrificial. Look at the second part of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, your headship in your home does not exist so that you can put your desires and needs before everybody else's in the home. Your headship exists so that you can give yourself up for your wife like Christ Gave himself up for you. That means that being the leader and the provider and the protector is sometimes going to be hard for you. There are going to be times when you have a conflict with your wife. And there will be times when the conflict is her fault. And you're going to feel like disengaging emotionally from your wife as some sort of a punishment or get back. You don't get to do that. You don't get to do a passive-aggressive sulk or explode in anger, whatever it is you do, until your wife swallows her pride and comes to try to make amends with you. You are the leader, and that means that you are leading the charge for reconciliation when there's conflict in your home. You get to treat your wife like Jesus treats you as a sinner. That's what this is saying here. Did Jesus wait for you to become repentant and deserving before he drew near to you? Did Jesus lead out in your reconciliation or did you lead out in your reconciliation with Jesus? You know the answer to that. Jesus did everything to win you and you must do the same for your wife. You say, but I'm really mad at her. Well, you get unmad. 
You say, but I'm not a good communicator. Then you get to be a better communicator. You take the initiative and you model tenderness and mercy and love and forgiveness and everything else that she needs for you to make submitting to you a joy for her. And you say, that's hard. Yeah, it's hard. But Jesus is your example. He's the one that blazed the trail for us. And you're not going to be called to do anything harder than what he did to love you. And your love is patterned after his. It's a real authority. Is Jesus' authority real? Yeah. But it's a sacrificial authority. So you follow Jesus and you love your wife self-sacrificially. And when they're throwing the dirt in on you in the coffin one day, your kids need to be able to look in and say, man, daddy loved mama. That's what you want. Why do you do this? Paul says there's actually a purpose in Christ's love for his bride. Verse 26. That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and blameless. Jesus gave himself up for his bride with a purpose in mind for her. He wanted to sanctify her in the present and to perfect her for the last day. In other words, Jesus has his bride's total spiritual renewal in mind when he initiates reconciliation with her. Husbands, does your, wife, does your love for your wife have a purpose? Jesus's did. Are you self-consciously calculating how you can cheer your wife on to love and good deeds? How you can encourage her to be more and more Christ-like until the last day appears? If you don't have your wife's sanctification and perfection in mind, you're not loving her as Christ loves his bride. So verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So a husband's care for his wife must be instinctive and intuitive just as he cares for himself. So your bride is not just your roommate like you had roommates in college, except this one happens to be female. No, the Bible says that you are one flesh with her. Her hurts, her desires, her needs, her wants, her dreams are your hurts, your desires, your needs, your dreams. Because you're one flesh with her. And you will never love your bride as Christ loves his bride if you're indifferent to your spouse. And if you let indifference build up over time, that coldness can come from years and months of passivity towards your marriage. If you let that happen, it will end in calamity. God has called you to lead, and that means that every single day you get up and you take the initiative to cultivate your vineyard, your relationship with your bride. If you don't, you'll wake up one day and you'll find thorns and thistles growing over your vineyard, and it will be devastating to you and to your family, and it will bring a reproach upon the gospel. So God's glory is at stake in a wife's submission. God's glory is at stake in a husband's love, but the last thing is this. God's glory in marriage. Everybody look at verse 29. Verse 29 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So here's another verse confirming that our marriages are to be patterned after Christ, Christ's marriage to his church. Christ 
nourishes and cherishes his bride. And it says, because we are members of his body. In other words, Christ doesn't hate his own flesh, but he loves it and cares for it instinctively. But how is it that we have become Jesus' own flesh? How, how does the church become Jesus' own flesh in this metaphor? Well, look at the next verse. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. How many of you recognize that? That's, that's a quotation from another text of Scripture, right? What, what, what's it quoting? Genesis 2.24, most important verse in all of the Bible about, about marriage. It's the single most important verse in all the Bible, explaining the meaning and the purpose of marriage. In fact, the most important statements about marriage in the New Testament come from Jesus and Paul. And in each case, they quote the Old Testament to establish what marriage is. But when Jesus and Paul quote the Old Testament, they never point to the great polygamist kings of Israel like David or Solomon. They never point to the grand polygamist patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Those aren't the patterns. In fact, those guys are filled with dysfunction. And a part of it is the polygamy. But it, it, those guys are filled with problems. Jesus and Paul never point to those guys as the pattern to define the pattern and purpose of marriage. For all their importance in biblical theology, Jesus and Paul never looked to any of those guys as the paradigm for marriage. Instead, without exception, they go back to the pre-fall monogamous union of Adam and Eve in the garden. And they say, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Paul does it in Matthew 19. Uh, excuse me, Jesus does it in Matthew 19. Paul is, is quoting it here in, in Ephesians 5. So what is that text in Genesis establishing? Well, it's establishing that marriage is the covenantal union before God of one man and one woman. That's what marriage is. They leave their families to form a new family. They are united together in a conjugal bond and they become one flesh through the consummated covenant of marriage. They become like blood relations. That's what it is. But notice at the beginning of verse 31, Paul doesn't introduce the quotation in a way that he ordinarily does. You know, a lot of times when he quotes from the Old Testament, he'll say, as it is written, or the scripture says. Without introduction, he just goes right in to quoting Genesis 2.24. And I think he does that because he wants the first phrase from Genesis 2.24 to have its real force in this context of Ephesians. Because it starts with, for this cause. Why does a man leave his father and mother and join himself to a wife? Why does marriage exist in the world? Why is it that we have this age-old institution that cuts across all cultures and times and religious groups? That one man and one woman would come together for life. Why does marriage exist? For this cause. For what cause? For this cause points us back to verse 30. What does verse 30 say? Verse 30 says, Christ nourishes and cherishes his church. Because Christ nourishes and cherishes his church, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother. For that cause, marriage exists on planet Earth. Marriage exists to tell a story about Jesus' marriage to his bride. And so Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Mystery for Paul is not the same way we use mystery, okay? When we use the word mystery, we're referring to something that's hidden and unknown. 
When Paul uses the word mystery, he's talking about something that was once hidden under the old covenant, but has now been revealed in the new. What was hidden in the old covenant, but now is clear in the new? Well, what was maybe not as clear in the old covenant was that God always intended marriage to be a beacon depiction of the gospel. That was the plan from the beginning. For this cause, people get married to demonstrate to the world that Christ loves his bride. Marriage exists to manifest the glory of Christ's redemptive love for his bride. That means that your marriage exists to display to the world the glory of Christ's redemptive love for his bride. Husbands, you are to love your bride in such a way that people can see Christ's love for his church. Wives, you are to affirm the leadership of your husband in such a way that the world can see the loveliness of Christ and the obedience of his bride. We are Christ's flesh and blood by covenant, and we belong to our beloved, and he belongs to us. And our marriages exist to draw attention to that, the ultimate gospel reality. So do you see how God's glory is at stake in all of this? Wives and what God has called you to and husbands and what God has called you to and to everybody here married or not. Do you see how glories how God's glory is at stake in marriage? You need to understand that the witness not just of you personally, but the witness of your church consists in large part in the marriages of your church. We take marriage seriously because God takes it seriously. And when a marriage falls apart, it's saying something blasphemous about Jesus in the gospel. <coughs> That's why we care so much about it. So marriage is hard. You're not going to be able to do it on your own. But God can give you the resources you need to do it. To be faithful to the calling that he's put on your life. I don't think, though, you're going to get there. If you don't have a vision for what marriage is supposed to be. And if you don't have a vision for how you want things to end up in your marriage. Marriage is not a personal lifestyle choice. Marriage is about the glory of God and about whether or not people are going to see the glory of God in the world. You ever wonder why marriage is under so much assault in our culture? I mean, what would you do if you were the devil? If God had created this little institution that was meant to depict the gospel to the world, to be this little parable to the world of how Jesus loves his bride, what would you do to marriage if you were the devil? If I were the devil, I'd try to tear that thing up and pervert it as much as I could. Try to shred it to pieces so that nobody could see Jesus in it. That's what I do. What do you think is happening? And it's not just happening because of gay marriage. It's happening every time a marriage falls apart. It's happening every time a, a, a church turns its head at the divorces that are going on. That's what's happening in the world, though. Marriages are just, it's, it's in disarray. But it can't happen among us, amongst God's people. We have to take God's definitions and we have to take what he says and to see his glory as the end goal of it all. And my wife and I hit a rough patch during our third year of marriage. We've been married for 23 years. 
And uh, I was still in seminary finishing uh, my education and had come to realize that I was not taking the long view of our marriage and where I wanted us to end up one day. And I began to realize that I, I really did want very badly um, for the years to gather up blessing and tenderness and not bitterness and indifference. And so it was our third anniversary and I tried my hand at writing a poem for my wife and I'm going to have permission to share this, but it was a bit of a vision of how I was hoping and praying we might end up. So um, I'm going to finish with this, but it's just a little story and then a little prayer. This is what it says. The old man took her tired hand to hold for one last time. The years had finally pressed her to her final breaths of life. Their wrinkled hands and warm embrace brought back the long gone years, the memory of their happy times, and those dissolved in tears. The old man saw in her ill frame the girl that stole his heart. He saw in her that gracious gaze that filled her home with warmth. His mind turned back to lighter days when she did make her mark, the children her love reared for them, her single heart for God. He also felt the weight of grace that marked her many years, how she had borne him patiently when he did cause the tears. The old man said, My love, the time was cruelly short to me. I cannot say goodbye to you and let your passing be. How can I ever say farewell or ever let you part? You're my only precious thing, the joy of my old heart. And as his eyes began to well, she reached to touch his face, and then her quivering voice began to give one final grace. This is the day that the Lord has made, the one he's brought to pass. This day was written in his book before my first was passed. The Lord has granted us to spend together all these years. He's also granted all the joy and even all our tears and though this is a bitter day, we owe him so much thanks. Dear, we made it. By him we did. Yes, we made it. By grace. And then here's the prayer. O Father, grant that we may see our days as at their end. O let us know the weight of grace in every year we spend. We make this prayer unto you, for there is no one higher. This testimony of your grace we desperately desire. Father, I pray that you would help us to see our days is at our end and that you would put upon our hearts the weight of glory that we are no ordinary people and that our marriages matter and it matters how we talk to each other and how we treat each other and how we forgive each other. And the choices that we make with, with our time and our energy and our attention. And Father, I pray for the marriages in this room that you would grant renewal and grace to them. And that they would be beacons of gospel grace to the world. I pray for any who are here who feel like their marriage is hanging on by a thin thread. Lord, I pray that you would restore the years that the locusts have eaten. You would open up cold hearts and make the bonds of love stronger than they've ever been. 
So, Father, you know the needs that are here. I pray that you would meet the needs of your people in this room. And I pray that you do it in Jesus' name. We ask it in his name. Amen.